Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash KPU. This independent learning activity is funded by Pfizer Canada. Welcome to this activity focusing on improving outcomes for patients with advanced hormone receptor positive or two negative breast cancer treated with CDK4-6 inhibitors. Joining me today is Dr. Jean-Claude Tardif, who's a cardiologist from the Montreal Heart Institute in Quebec. Cancer and heart disease are our two most um, uh, significant health factors affecting Canadians. Breast cancer is indeed the most common cancer affecting women in Canada. In terms of the interaction and intersection of these two conditions, breast cancer therapies do impact cardiovascular health, and cardiovascular health and fitness overall does impact breast cancer and the treatments that we're able to provide. So in today's discussion, we're going to talk about how to optimize cardiovascular health in our patients with advanced breast cancer, focusing on the population with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease. This is the majority of patients that we are seeing in our clinic. First-line therapy for patients with hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, metastatic breast cancer, now in Canada, is 90% of the time treated with a doublet therapy of a CDK4-6 inhibitor and an endocrine backbone. This represents a shift from what had previously been the standard of care in, in even a, just a decade ago, where uh, endocrine monotherapy or even chemotherapy might have been our first choice approach. The reason for this shift is valid, as has been shown in the suite of trials that have assessed CDK4-6 inhibitors in this setting, which have demonstrated a doubling in the median progression-free survival for patients treated with the doublet of CDK4-6 inhibitor and endocrine therapy versus just endocrine therapy backbone. When we look at the toxicities associated with these agents, we do add the increased risk of having more side effects. And, and that was seen across all of these trials. In many of these trials, dose reductions were required. Um, and in a minority of patients, treatment discontinuation was required. Dr. Tardif, could you walk us through some of these toxicities and their relevance for patients' overall health and well-being? Sure. Thank you, Dr. Simmons. So in terms of endocrine therapies, you have tamoxifen, so a selective estrogen receptor modulator uh, that can be associated with vascular toxicities and in particular thromboembolic uh, diseases like uh, pulmonary embolus, deep venous thrombosis, or stroke. As far as the aromatase inhibitors are concerned, uh, the risks are smaller, but uh, have been documented in terms of vascular toxicities, uh, cardiac and myocardial dysfunction, as well as heart failure. When turning to CDK4-6 inhibitors, ribocyclib uh, has been shown to prolong the QT interval with a potential risk for ventricular arrhythmias. Thank you, Dr. Tardif. So... Knowing these risks, when we're approaching therapy in the first-line setting for someone with advanced hormone receptor positive or two negative breast cancer, of course, we're completing uh, a fulsome history 
we're looking for all of the comorbidities that this patient may be presenting with as well. Um, but I think it's important for us to be mindful of some of the particular comorbidities that can result in, in the need for medications or potential future need for medications that could potentially interact with these agents. It is so important for us to work with our pharmacy colleagues for uh, help with medical reconciliation and uh, assessment for drug-drug interactions that can potentially have an impact on the QT interval. When we're uh, assessing baseline cardiovascular health, I do a baseline ECG in all of my patients. Certainly this is consistent with guidelines um, in recommending baseline assessment. It is so important to evaluate from a safety perspective whether it is okay to proceed with an agent that could potentially prolong the QT. I'm talking about the patient's mental health. What is their baseline function from a depression and anxiety perspective? We need to be mindful that those mental health um, aspects may change over time, resulting in a need for SSRIs. Does this patient have seasonal allergies? Are they um, using over-the-counter antihistamines on a regular basis? All of these things are really important. We need to function as a, as a well-oiled machine, as a team. Medicine is a team-based sport, and it is so important for us to whoop in our pharmacy colleagues, our uh, colleagues in family practice, and of course, our cardiology colleagues like yourself, Dr. Tardif, um, and our cardio-oncology experts. So when we think about the uh, risk of cardiovascular events or arrhythmias in these patients, I'm completing that baseline ECG. And uh, when I see that the um, QT interval is, is less than 480, that's easy. We carry on as, as usual. Um, but when I'm seeing that the QT interval is above 480, I am more nervous. Dr. Tardif, you know, in the setting of someone with a QT interval in that 480 to 500 range, what is the true risk of this patient developing a, a potential ventricular arrhythmia and how should I be mitigating that risk? Yes. So that's an important question. As a cardiologist, obviously I've seen patients uh, with uh, QTC prolongation, but not only that, but also leading to malignant ventricular arrhythmias. Uh, in the context of a QTC prolongation, it's a special type of ventricular arrhythmia that we call torsade de point or TDP, uh, that is obviously uh, potentially fatal in, in the very short terms, in, in the next few minutes. Whenever you're faced with a patient that has a QTC um, of 500 milliseconds or more and or a prolongation of at least 60 milliseconds, then you need to consider a number of issues. Is the patient uh, suffering from hypokalemia? In which case, it would need to be corrected. Is the patient suffering from hypocalcemia? In which case, it would need to be um, um, obviously corrected, but also one would need to understand the cause of that, uh, of that problem. Is the patient suffering from a thyroid abnormality and does the patient need a thyroid uh, hormone uh, replacement? And then if the patient is taking concomitant medications like an antidepressant or an antihistamine, can that medication be stopped or reduced to reduce the risk of further Q2C prolongation, the risk of ventricular arrhythmias? And then once you've done all of that, 
the physician with the patient need to consider the risk versus benefit ratio of some of the drugs like ripocyclib that can prolong the QTC. So there needs to be a comprehensive assessment of that patient. So you have sets of recommendations for adocrine therapies and for CDK46 inhibitor therapy. So in patients without pre-existing cardiovascular disease, certainly a cardiovascular risk assessment at baseline should be performed in terms of future risk of fatal, fatal or non-fatal cardiovascular events. And then uh, re-evaluation on an annual uh, basis uh, certainly would be uh, recommended. As far as CDK4 sex inhibitors are concerned, in particular for ribocycleb, we have discussed this uh, potential for QTC prolongation. I would certainly recommend to collect an ECG at baseline and then repeat it at 14 and 28 days and uh, also monitor for any evidence of QTC prolongation when there's any dose uh, increase that needs to take place. I totally agree. We are now in a setting where the average length of life is beyond five years. So these long-term potential risks are becoming even more important. So one of the um, things that we need to think about in that, um, in that uh, setting, as there is this significant potential for prolonged survival and for uh, very long responders uh, that we are seeing uh, in this setting um, is that there are other uh, conditions and other diseases that are likely to develop as our patients are seeing us over the course of time. This data was published looking at uh, SEER database in patients with uh, breast cancer treated with curative intent, um, looking at the post five-year uh, diagnosis and rates of uncomplicated diabetes, renal disease that may affect our potassium levels, peripheral vascular disease, dementia, and congestive heart failure. These numbers are quite significant. This is uh, um, something that we are likely to be seeing more and more in our metastatic population. So uh, it's an important reminder for us to be uh, mindful of the, the health evolution of our patients um, and, and certainly of our older patients that are often the majority that we're seeing in our practice these days. Um, ensuring that we're looping in all of the members of the healthcare team to provide the best possible high quality care for our patients. So Dr. Tardif, this has been an absolute pleasure to be um, working with you and, and chatting with you about this this morning. Um, I certainly uh, feel that in our work together, I've taken away the importance to continue to, to follow my patients with a baseline ECG, um, but also make sure that I uh, repeat that ECG with any dose modification that I might make um, with these CDK4-6 inhibitors. So I thank you very much for that um, uh, pearl of insight today as well. Thank you very much. Welcome to this activity, which is focusing on considerations for care in the treatment of hormone-positive, HER2-negative advanced breast cancer. Joining me today is my colleague and good friend, Dr. Tina Su, a geriatric oncologist from the University of Ottawa in Ottawa, Ontario. Welcome, Tina. Thanks, Karen. I'm so excited to be joining you to discuss this important topic. Great. So let's get started. We know older women represent 
the majority of patients diagnosed with breast cancer. In some data from the Canadian Cancer Registry from 2021, 73% of women were greater than age 60. And although they may get all subtypes of breast cancer, the vast majority have estrogen receptor positive HER2 negative breast cancers. Now the issue with these women is they often have other health conditions. Often they are not treated with our standard guidelines that we use for younger women. So how do we look at these women who have maybe polypharmacy, comorbidities, but also have advanced breast cancer? We know that chronological age alone isn't the issue, but there's a complex way to assess these patients. So Tina, with your expertise, can you walk us through some of these challenges you see when treating older persons with breast cancer? Thank you, Karen. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think as clinicians, we all recognize that older patients are more challenging in multiple ways. You yourself mentioned uh, chronological age is often not a really good marker of how all those patients are doing. Trying to determine their true age is always much more difficult. Um, we know that as patients age, they get much more heterogeneous. And so um, trying to determine what is the best treatment also is much more challenging. We are much more concerned about the implications of toxicity on this patient population. On top of the issues related directly to assessing and managing patients, I think that there are some issues with the way our system runs. Time is an issue. So um, many of these patients require more time and the lack of time is challenging. Although our uh, patients are aging, many of us haven't received the same amount of training in caring for older adults. On top of that, many of our studies are um, biased against older patients. Our older patients that are on these studies tend to be the fittest of the fit. So sometimes the generalizability of this data to the patients that we see in clinic is very challenging. Thank you, Tina. That's really uh, helpful. So to address some of these challenges, why don't we first look at some data and then work our way up from there? We know that the standard of care for hormone-positive HER2-negative patients with advanced breast cancer is a CDK4-6 inhibitor and endocrine therapy. We do have some data on these older patients, although as you point out, the number of older patients enrolled in clinical trials is very low. In one analysis, it showed that patients did benefit more from the combination of a CDK4-6 inhibitor with endocrine therapy than giving monotherapy with endocrine therapy alone, but that there was a larger number of persons who had dose decreases. Now, these dose decreases were usually due to neutropenia, which is a known side effect of CDK4-6 inhibitors. What was also very important in this study was that no new safety data came out so there were no new safety concerns or no new toxicities in these persons 75 or older. Paloma 2 was a large study randomizing patients to palbociclib plus an AI or an AI alone. They looked at people who had pre-existing conditions. So they divided into four pre-existing groups, gastrointestinal problems, pre-existing metabolic problems, pre-existing musculoskeletal disorders, or cardiovascular disorders. In all four of these groups, patients did better with the combination of palbociclib plus an AI than the AI alone. And again, no new toxicities or safety signals came out in any of these groups. 
so suggesting that we can treat people with pre-existing conditions. Now, as Tina's pointed out, we have a paucity of older people in clinical trials, but we have some real-world data. SEER in the U.S. has looked at persons greater than 65 years of age. Those who got a CDK4-6 inhibitor plus endocrine therapy did better in terms of overall survival than those with endocrine therapy alone. Flatiron looked at over 700 patients who got um, a CDK4-6 inhibitor plus endocrine therapy versus endocrine therapy alone, and again showed that progression-free survival was better in those that got combination treatment. Now, as Tina said, it's always the fittest people that get the treatment. Often we don't give the treatment to those who aren't fit, whether it's in a clinical trial or real-world data. I find, however, the only people that I really think about not giving a CDK4-6 inhibitor plus endocrine therapy to are those who are really unfit, those with very poor performance status, those who really have a very short survival, or those who are just so overwhelmed that they can't really take in the idea of taking more than one medication. So Tina, you are a geriatric oncology specialist. It's, you bring those skills to the clinic. Can we talk about how we can effectively translate these findings into clinical practice and how you assess the older patients? Yeah, thank you so much for asking. So I certainly know that there's lots of data for something called a comprehensive geriatric assessment that's been really shown to improve outcomes in older patients. But I understand that this is not something that is possible for most uh, people. So how do I approach an older patient with cancer in my clinic? We look at the cancer characteristics. What's the biology of the cancer? Where is the location? What's the uh, phenotype? But I also think about things like life expectancies, endocrine therapy alone is certainly a very reasonable option in some of our patients who we don't think are going to live to get um, benefit from these CDK4-6 inhibitors. Certainly their fitness for treatment, that also includes pragmatic things like how easy is it for them to get out of the house to come and see us? How much do they understand? Certainly looking at their health and uh, any potential contraindications to treatment. While these drugs have really improved survival, for some patients, um, this isn't necessarily the most important thing. And it does come at some expense. Thankfully, toxicity um, is not usually a major issue, but there certainly is a lot more commitment. It means more visits. We see these patients often every month rather than every few months. And that means time away from home and for some people, a lot of travel. This is a really nice study that shows that when you ask patients what's the most important to you, there's a whole variety of answers. Yes, living as long as possible is important to many people, but in 44% of patients, that's really not the most important thing to them. Independence is really important, quality of life. And although not shown on this particular slide, I know that there are many studies that show that maintaining cognition is very important to many of our patients. My bottom line is, if you don't ask, you won't know. So I think it's so important to include these conversations when we're making these decisions with our patients. Um, and so putting that together, I really think about things in terms of um, the fitness of the patient. So I've really tried to move away from age because I think age is really not the main issue here. I think a patient who's fit, regardless if they're 70, 50, 85, should be offered exactly what we would offer a younger patient. Um, they should be offered a aromatase inhibitor and a CDK4-6 inhibitor, as long as it's aligned with their, with their preferences. Um, I think that the nice thing is that these drugs generally are really well tolerated. 
And I think that they can be considered even in patients who are perhaps a bit more vulnerable. Depending on your choice of TAQ4-6 inhibitor, you may want to consider starting at a lower dose and titrating it up. Certainly, many of these patients require a little bit more closer follow-up for some of those side effects. What's more challenging is those frail patients that you had mentioned before. I think um, single-agent treatment is very reasonable in these patients. And depending on the patient and their situation, sometimes even considering best supportive care, it really just depends at the end of the day what is important to them. The last thing to mention is the newly um, presented SONIA data. And SONIA data suggests that as long as you get exposure to a CDK46 inhibitor, that overall patients might do the same. Yes, there are some limitations to this, but I think it's very helpful in making those recommendations. Treatment is overwhelming, and sometimes getting them started on something and into the system makes it a lot more palatable maybe in the second line setting. Thank you, Tina. That's really helpful. One of the problems we sometimes see is the patient comes in, they're overwhelmed. They've gotten a diagnosis of advanced disease, and often they come in with very well-meaning family members, but we hear the family member's voice and not the patient's voice. How do you deal with that difficult situation? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's not an uncommon situation. Sometimes being direct and asking the patient what they want, um, maybe trying to tell the family members, I hear what you want. I just want to make sure that I hear what your loved one wants as well. Um, And to make it a very um, positive experience for them, I think that's important. Um, I think some of these decisions also take time. So sometimes bringing patients back again in the future. These first appointments are very overwhelming. We talk about a lot of different things. Tina, you've really given us some tools of how to deal with this. I'd really like to thank you for your participation. The bottom line is we want to personalize the healthcare for all our patients, including our older patients. They're complex, they take time, but we have to give them that time to give them the best therapy. Is there anything else you want to add today, Tina? Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. And I think uh, to talk about is what's such a relevant and uh, topic that we see every day in our clinics. I think we should be offering these treatments and really offering a very balanced pros and cons discussion rather than assuming that perhaps they're older and you know she, you know wouldn't want to have this. I think that's ultimately what we are trying to get at in this uh, session today. Thank you, Tina. And I want to also thank you, the audience, for listening today. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.